Good morning, and welcome back to our series through the book of Mark. Uh, This morning we're going to be in Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. And the title of this sermon is Follow Me. Last week, we saw the hinge point of the entire book of Mark in Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. Uh, Starting with today's text, we'll see the beginning of Jesus's prediction of his death and resurrection, and therefore a move toward Jerusalem throughout the remainder of this book. Uh, From this point forward, we'll be moving explicitly and quickly towards the cross. Uh, In other words, the main focus of the first half of the book of Mark is on who Jesus is. Um, The second half will certainly keep that focus, but zero in on what he came to do. For that reason, Jesus wants his disciples and us this morning to understand both the meaning of his messiahship and the cost of discipleship. So, What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Uh, We're going to see that Peter doesn't quite get that in our text today. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And then what does it cost for us to follow him? Now let's dive into the text. Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. This is the word of the Lord. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling The crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Our three points for dissecting today's text are these. Point number one, messianic musts in verse 31. Point two, resisting God's plan in verses 32 and 33. And then point three, following Jesus in verse 34 through 38. So point one, messianic musts. Uh, From the beginning, we have to remember the context here of these verses. Uh, When asked, who do you say that I am? A couple of verses earlier that we saw last week, Peter responded truthfully and simply, you are the Christ. This was the right response. But, like the blind man who Jesus had just healed, you remember, 
Peter didn't quite see clearly. Thus, Jesus strictly charging them to tell no one about him. You see, Peter and the other disciples, they knew the word Messiah very well, actually. They knew the word Messiah or Christ. But they didn't quite understand its true meaning. They even knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But they didn't know what kind of Messiah that he'd be. So here, in verse 31... Jesus begins to teach them. Look at what he says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. First off, Jesus, in using this name, Son of Man, is referring to himself. Again, uh, I'll remind us that we saw this name in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Most likely, Peter and the rest of his crew understood this part of it. They got this part of it. Dominion, check. Glory, check. Kingdom, yeah. We're in for that. We're here for that. But Jesus had more to teach them. The key word in this verse, in verse 31, that actually shapes this entire text all the way through is this word, must. Jesus is abundantly clear here that these things must happen. Not might happen. Not even should happen, but must. This is the type of Messiah that Jesus will be. These things must happen. So, what does it say that must happen? Four things. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise again. These things must happen. But why? Well, first, they must happen because the scriptures say they will. Uh, Isaiah chapter 52, it tells us that his appearance will be marred beyond human semblance. Then Isaiah 53, just following that, Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 5, look at this. This is speaking of Jesus. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Do you see those verbs? Afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
700 years before Jesus came, it was written, he'd be a suffering servant. How about Psalm 22? Basically, a play-by-play of the crucifixion, written almost 600 years before Jesus came. Forsaken, despised, poured out, pierced. These are all verbs that are in that text. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Then, resurrection foretold in Psalm 41, which entails death. These things must happen because the scriptures said they would. But I want to be really clear here. This isn't like a crystal ball thing where God just knew that these things would happen. He's actually active in them happening and in making them happen. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Do you see that? God is actively involved, not only in in knowing his word, but in performing it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Then verse 10, he says, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God isn't a fortune teller. He plans what he's going to do, and then he's active in accomplishing his purposes. Look at how Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 talk about this. It says, for truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God has an infallible plan and purpose. And for this reason, these things must happen. Now, for just a moment, do you see how important and vital the sovereignty of God is to the gospel? From before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. Then he sovereignly fulfilled that plan to a T. There was nothing random or accidental about it. He accomplished his plan and his purpose perfectly. God's sovereignty and salvation it isn't troublesome or academic. It's beautiful and it's glorious. Salvation can only come through a suffering Messiah. That was God's plan from the beginning. There's So much more that we could say there, but we've got to move on. If these messianic musts, 
If they're so central and vital to God's glorious plan, which we've just seen that they are, if that's true, that makes the next couple of verses all the more startling. All right, good. So point two, resisting God's plan. Look with me at verse 32. So speaking of Jesus, it says, And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus wasn't unclear, was he? He said this plainly. <laughs> it wasn't because Peter didn't understand that he gave the response that he did. It was because he did understand clearly. Jesus spoke plainly. Peter got it, but he didn't like it. In verse 32, tells us that Peter began to rebuke him. Remember, all of these musts are central to God's plan in the gospel. They're necessary for Peter's salvation and for ours. Peter is not on board with Jesus going to the cross. And this word for rebuke that's used here is an interesting one. It's used scripturally in connection with the condemnation of demons. So when Jesus silenced demons, he did it by rebuking them. Same word. The point is this. Peter didn't just mildly disagree with Jesus here. He wasn't like, hey, Jesus, I'm kind of uncomfortable with this. And I have some questions. You think maybe we could get together later and, and chat about all of this? No. He's hostile. It was a rebuke of Jesus and God's sovereign plan. Matthew tells us explicitly what Peter said in this rebuke. Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, all the things that you just said must happen, most certainly won't. Do you think you ever know better than Jesus? When we see it in someone else, like Peter this morning, it's a lot easier to see the folly, huh? God's sovereign plan of salvation is glorious. And whether we understand it all or not, it's good. The question is, do we trust him? Or we think we have a better way? Do you ever think you know better than Jesus? Unfortunately, so often we think there's an easier path. Take, for example, legalism. The belief that we can make ourselves right with God through simply being good enough. If that were possible, Jesus could have avoided the cross, right? We could have just done it on our own. We don't know better than Jesus. Suffering, rejection, dying, and rising were all absolutely necessary for our salvation. There 
isn't an easier way. So how does Jesus respond to Peter's rebuke? Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, meaning Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So there's that word again, rebuke. Same word as before. Same word Jesus uses to quiet demons. Used on Peter. Then, to be more explicit and clear, Jesus calls him Satan. Why would Jesus do this? First of all, because, as we learned before, Peter is opposing and rejecting the gospel plan of God. But most explicitly, Peter is presenting the same temptation that Satan presented in the desert, in the temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, says, Again, the devil took him, meaning Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan, in Matthew 4, and Peter, here in our text, are trying to offer Jesus a crown without a cross. They're saying, Jesus, you can have the throne without pain, without suffering, without dying. Just do it my way. Peter wants Jesus to fit his agenda, not the other way around. But that's not God's plan. And I'll let you in on a little secret this morning. That's not his plan for us this morning either. Jesus isn't here to fit our agenda. We're here to fit his. His plan is perfect, but it's often hard. So the question is, will you submit to God's word and God's plan? Or will you rebuke Jesus? And look at what Jesus adds after calling Peter Satan. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Essentially, he's saying, Peter, there's two ways of looking at the world. God's way and man's way. Your heart's in the wrong place, Peter. You've set your mind on the things of man. So easy to pick on Peter here, right? But I want us to consider our minds and our own hearts for a moment. Where are you regularly setting your mind? On the things of God or on the things of man? Having a job, making a living, these are good things. These are good gifts that God gives us. But the world's way of thinking makes these good things ultimate things. 
said another way. Do you work at your job with the things of God in mind? Or is the sole purpose of your job to gain status and stuff, to make life more comfortable for yourself? That's Peter's mindset here. Jesus, stop talking about suffering. That's not the good life. That's not an easier life for me. Now, I don't care if that's your plan. Not going to happen, Jesus. That's the world's way of thinking. To see the cross as folly. So I ask you, Christians, where are you setting your mind? Are you seeking first the kingdom? Or are there other priorities that primarily drive your thoughts and actions? Before moving on, I want to just make a a couple of brief comments here on Peter. Do you see that Peter was both well-intentioned and zealous here? He's well-intentioned and zealous. That doesn't make his actions right. And it's not an excuse for his actions. Now, I think it's right for us to challenge Peter here and see the folly in his ways. I think it's right for us to challenge our own ways this morning as they line up with Peter's. But remember that Peter wasn't a false convert. He was a Christian. We know that he would continue to have his eyes opened more and more and more. Here's what I want us to see. Even real Christians are often ignorant, self-conceited, fallible creatures. I love what J.C. Ryle says here. He says, let us learn humility from the facts here recorded. Let us beware of being puffed up with our own spiritual attainments or exalted by the praise of others. Let us never think that we know everything and are not likely to err. We see that it is but a little step from making a good confession to being a Satan in Christ's way. Let us pray daily, he says. Hold me up, keep me, teach me. Let me not err. I love that. We should also take that posture in our charity and grace towards others. Someone can be a true Christian and still fall into the very same trap as Peter here in our text. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. So, where does Jesus go from here? Point three, following Jesus. Look with me at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, Notice this. Jesus calls the crowd 
to him. He wants to make sure that a large group of people hear what he's about to say. And then he says something that isn't attractive to crowds at all. He says, if anyone would come after, the actual word here is the same word translated follow a couple words later. This is intentional. Jesus uses the same word follow as kind of bookends to highlight the middle. He's going to be clear on what it means to follow him. So, follow me, the middle, deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Do you see what he's teaching Peter and his disciples in the crowds here? He's saying confessing Christ means following him to the cross. Now, if someone were to ask you this morning, what must I do to be saved? How would you respond? What must I do to be saved? You could easily point to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and simply say, repent and believe. Turn from your sins, trust in Christ. Repent and believe. That's correct. But we've got to be so careful here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer begins his classic work, labeled The Cost of Discipleship, with these words. He says, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. He goes on to say that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. What am I saying here? Simply telling someone to believe without defining it can and often does end up exactly where Bonhoeffer describes, with what's called easy believism. Someone believing that simply because they made a statement when they were five, walked an aisle, raised their hand at church camp, that if they only did that and nothing else, that they're actually following Jesus. I want to be clear. I'm not adding to the gospel here. Neither is Jesus. To be saved, you must repent and believe. Period. We can't add to what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day for us. When we repent and believe, we will be saved. But we have to define what it means to believe. We have to fill it out. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, you want to know what it means to follow me? And I want to be abundantly clear here. He's not about to give a job description just for super Christians. This is for everyone who claims to follow Jesus. Everyday disciples like you and like me. Normal Christians. That's all that there are in Scripture is normal Christians. This is what he says. Number one, deny 
yourself. Deny yourself. What does he mean by this? One commentator simply stated that it means to say no to you and yes to Jesus. To say no to you and yes to Jesus. It's giving up your right to self-determination. It's denying the idol of self-autonomy. Do you realize how countercultural this is? Our culture tells us that the self is the most important thing in the entire world. Our culture says, just follow your heart. That's probably the worst advice ever. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Just follow your heart is terrible advice. Jesus doesn't say follow your heart. He says follow me. Self-actualization, let's just be honest, self-actualization is God in the religion known as secularism. That's our current culture today. Jesus says, deny self. That self, put it to death, Jesus says. And to further clarify, he says, take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Sometimes we talk about trials or something that we're going through as crosses to bear. Jesus isn't simply talking about everyday trials here. Kent Hughes helpfully adds this. He says, a cross comes from specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life. It comes from bearing disdain because we are embracing the narrow way of the cross, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. It comes from living out the business and sexual ethics of Christ in the marketplace, in the world. It comes from embracing weakness instead of power. It comes from extending oneself in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. And here we go. This is important. In closing, he says, Our crosses come from and are proportionate to our dedication to Christ. Difficulties are not an indication of cross-bearing. Difficulties for Christ's sake are. Do you see how Jesus is defining discipleship here? By saying no to self, yes to Jesus and in walking in his ways, which involves dying to self, allowing your self to be crucified on a cross. Every single person has the choice between two selves. A self that's all about itself and one that has died, been reborn, a new self. Jesus gives us a portrait of these two selves in verse 35. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So one self clings to this world and the things of man. It loves the things of this world and itself. That self, Jesus says, will actually lose its life. But oneself that's willingly and willfully being crucified for Jesus' sake, for the gospel's sake, 
that self will be saved. That self will truly experience Jesus, who's more satisfying than anything in all the world. It's like the little kid whose parents tell them, you can eat that stale cookie, but there's cake and ice cream coming. It's so much better than what you're about to eat. Deny the cookie so that you can have something better. Or in adult terms, what if I ask you to forego 500 bucks to gain 1 million? Do you understand that what Jesus is calling us to deny isn't something that's good for us, that he's depriving us of? He's saying, deny yourself. That self will ultimately kill you if you make it your God. Instead, put that self on the cross. When you do that, you get me. You get real, abundant, all-satisfying life. And look at how Jesus closes. In the last two verses, he shows us what it looks like. Treasure him and the gospel above all other things. As we deny self and treasure him, this is what it looks like. First, to treasure him above possessions. Verses 36 and 37. It says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, you've gained the whole world, yet forfeited your soul. Think about that. If you could gain all of the, the hot companies right now, Tesla, Apple, Google, Facebook, you gained all of that, yet forfeited your soul, you've lost. Unfortunately, we're willing to forfeit our souls for so much less, aren't we? A boyfriend or girlfriend, a nice house and a car, to be liked on social media, that job with status, the right school, the right friends. You can cling to this world and its pleasures and lose your soul not worth it. You're sacrificing something that's valuable beyond comparison or something that's worthless in the end. All the possessions of this world don't carry weight in heaven. Stuff isn't worth your soul. True life is treasuring Christ and the gospel above possessions. Second, True life is treasuring Christ in the gospel above praise. Look at verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So denying yourself, taking up your cross, 
looks like denying your desire to always be liked in this world. Understand this. To follow Jesus and his words will mean scorn from the world. And in that, we have a decision to make. Whose approval will we crave most? Whose approval do we crave most? The world or Jesus? And that's Jesus' point here. If we, like Peter, are setting our minds on the things of this world, we'll do anything not to be embarrassed by the world. We'll crave their praise at the cost of being ashamed of Jesus and his words. Two quick questions. Are there people in your life that know you well, that don't know you're a Christian? If so, I want to encourage you this morning to meditate on these words of Jesus and ask yourself some hard questions. Jesus promised us in these musts that he'd be rejected. So why are we so afraid of following him in this? Second, is there anything that you believe? Or is there anything in the way that you live that would cause this adulterous and sinful generation to be ashamed of you? Are there any difficulties that you experience in life because of following Jesus? Hear this loud and clear. I'm not advocating going around and simply being a jerk, ticking people off, or going looking for a fight. That's not what I'm saying. But following Christ means swimming upstream. It means speaking and acting in such a way that you're not ashamed of Jesus and his words. To do that, you have to put yourself to death. In conclusion, there's two ways to live in this world. The way of the self in this world, or the way of Jesus, which entails rejection suffering, death itself. Submitting yourself to Jesus means committing yourself to a life of costly discipleship. But everything you'll deny is nothing in comparison with the joy and the hope of Jesus and the resurrected life that you gain. Hold loosely to the things of this world Cling to Christ. Treasure him and the gospel above all things. That's what it means to follow him. Follow him. It'll cost you your life. And it'll save your life. Let's pray.